Section 5 of An Interpretation of Keats Endymion by Henry Clement Notcutt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Story of Glaucus in Keats Endymion. The story of Glaucus, as it is told by Keats in the third book of Endymion, is based upon some passages in the thirteenth and fourteenth books of Ovid's Metamorphoses. There is still some difference of opinion as to the meaning that Keats intended to convey by this part of his poem, and an examination of the way in which he has handled his materials, and the changes that he has introduced into the story, may throw light on the question at issue. The story, as given by Ovid, runs as follows. Glaucus was a fisherman, taking great delight in the sea, and spending his life on or near it. One day, having come to a meadow which had never before been visited by man or beast, he spread out on the bank the fishes that he had caught. To his surprise he saw them, after nibbling at the grass on which they lay, move over the land and slip down again into the sea. He wondered what cause could have worked such a marvel, and himself plucked and tasted some of the grass. At once his nature was changed. He plunged into the sea and was fit to be received into the sacred fellowship of the sea-gods. Then he met Scylla, and loved her, but she fled from him, and, not being able to induce her to listen to him, he appealed to Circe for help. But Circe replied, according to the version of George Sandys, of which Keats made use, The willing with more ease pursue, who wish the same, whom equal flames subdue, for thou, O well, deservedst to be pursued. Give hope, and credit me, thou shalt be wooed. Rest, therefore, of thy beauty confident. Lo, I, a goddess, radiant soul's descent, in herbs so potent, and no less in charms, proffer myself and pleasures to thy arms. Scorn her that scorns thee, her that seeks pursue and in one deed revenge thyself of two. Glaucus, however, rejected her advances. First shady groves shall on the billows grow, and seaweeds to the mountain tops remove, ere I and Scylla living change my love. Circe was angered, but not being able, nor indeed willing, to harm Glaucus, who was now, like herself, divine, she bent her wrath upon Scylla. She poisoned a pool where Scylla was wont to bathe. Now Scylla came, and, wading to the waist, beheld her hips with barking dogs embraced. Starts back, at first, not thinking that they were part of herself, but rates them, and doth fear their threatening jaws. But those from whom she flies, she with her hails. Glaucus wept at the change, and refused to have anything to do with Circe. Scylla, in hatred of Circe, destroyed the companions of Ulysses, and was only prevented from sinking the Trojan ships by being further transformed into a rock. The stony prodigy, yet eminent, from which the seamen fly. When we turn to Endymion, to see in what fashion Keats has handled this curious legend, the first point that attracts our notice is that he has made no use of the quaint and picturesque account of the way in which Glaucus came to win the freedom of the sea. The fishes that use the magic properties of the grass to get back into the sea 
and thus showed glaucus how he could enter the new life for which he longed play no part in the story as it is told in the pages of endymion in this poem glaucus impelled by his desire for the sea simply plunged for life or death and found to his astonishment that he could live in the denser element it appears at first sight rather surprising that such a promising bit of material should have been cast aside but if keats had some meaning to express with which the incident could not be related one can see why it had to be rejected even though the story was thereby rendered more tame and flat it would carry us beyond the limits available to attempt to discuss every detail of the narrative but we may select four leading points where keats has introduced original elements into it and examine these with a view to seeing what light they may throw on the purpose underlying this part of the poem one in the story of glaucus himself there is at the outset a strong resemblance to that of endymion each lives a life in close contact with nature each delights in solitude while showing a kindly disposition towards those around him who cannot share his aspirations or even understand them each again feels a restless longing for a life different from that which he has been living and in each there springs up an intense desire for union with a being or the attainment of an ideal only to be achieved after a long period of probation the later story is not however a mere repetition of the earlier endymion was a prince and a wanderer of the forest and mountain while glaucus was a fisherman and his delight was all in the sea and they soon diverge from one another for while endymion though sometimes despondent remains faithful throughout to the ideal that he is striving to reach glaucus yields to the baleful charms of circe and forgetting scylla gives himself up to the pleasures with which his new mistress surrounds him so keats tells the story but it was not thus that he found it in ovid for ovid says that glaucus firmly and decisively rejected the advances of circe footnote talia temptanti prius inquit in equore frondes glaucus et un sumis nascentur montibus alge sospite quam silla nostri mutentur amores metamorphoses book fourteen line thirty seven end footnote here then if keats is not inventing at random we may look for a clue to the meaning of the story it is generally accepted that the story of endymion as told by keats was intended to represent the growth of the poetic passion in the mind of the poet and if this be so we can hardly fail to recognize the significance in the close similarity which the earlier part of the story of glaucus bears to that of endymion in each we have the same unsatisfied longings the same reaching after an apparently unattainable ideal and if the aspirations of endymion stand for the rise of the poetic impulse in an individual or in a community it seems difficult to refuse a similar significance to those of glaucus and the divergence of their stories suggests that while the later poetic movement represented by endymion remained faithful to the ideal that inspired it the earlier for which glaucus stands had been seduced from the loftiness of purpose that had at first inspired it 
and had followed lower and less worthy aims had english poetry ever passed through an experience of this kind it is beyond question that keats believed that it had and the picture that he draws with no authority from ovid of glaucus forgetting the beautiful maiden who eluded his pursuit and yielding to the lower fascinations of the evil-minded enchantress is quite an effective presentation of his view of what had happened to english poetry in the days of the pseudo-classical school he felt that it had then forsaken the ideal after which it had been striving and had allowed itself to fall under the allurements of a false enticement and the punishment that circe inflicted upon glaucus when he discovered her exercising her baleful charms upon other victims a punishment invented by keats in wilful disregard of the statement of ovid that circe could do no such thing footnote ingeniata dea est he ledere quitenus ipsum non poterat nec velit amans metamorphoses book fourteen line forty End footnote. was the punishment that fell upon english poetry as the direct result of yielding to these enticements it lost all poetic force and fell into decrepitude they went about holding a poor decrepit standard out as keats himself has put it in another place whether we accept or differ from this view of pope and his school is of no moment the point is that this revision of the story of glaucus forms a very effective pictorial representation of the view that was held and proclaimed by keats and others who were associated with him in the new poetical movement two the changes that keats has made in the story as it concerns Scylla, are in harmony with this interpretation in the metamorphoses the vengeance of circe falls mainly upon her and she is changed into a hideous shape surrounded by ravening dogs nor is she ever restored to her former beauty but in endymion no such disfigurement is allowed to overtake her circe merely puts her into a death-like trance in which her beauty is not marred and from which she is eventually restored to life and we can understand this change if we recognize that scylla like diana stands for a poetical ideal beautiful and attractive in itself but ceasing as keats felt to exercise any living power over men during the time of which we have spoken the story as told by ovid is picturesque and striking but it would not carry the meaning that was required keats could not speak of the ideal as changed into something ugly and monstrous it had become powerless for a time but one day it would live again and draw men after it as before and so the story of scylla is modified to suit the meaning that was to be conveyed three in describing the part that circe plays in the story keats has used the narrative of the metamorphoses as a starting point and has also drawn upon his reminiscences of the account of her given in the tenth book of the odyssey but here again the line that he takes soon begins to diverge from that of his predecessors in his version of the story glaucus waked one morning and found that circe was not with him he searched through the forest and at length came upon her seated upon an uptorn forest root and surrounded by the creatures over whom she was tyrannizing she fed them with grapes from a basket and then having sprinkled a branch of mistletoe 
with some sooty oil, she whisked it in their eyes. They shrieked and groaned with pain, their bodies began to swell, and then, carried through the air as if by a whirlwind, they vanished. Footnote Endymion, Book 3, Lines 476 to 530 End footnote It is a most fantastic story, and it seems unlikely that Keats would, in wanton idleness of fancy, have turned it into such a grotesque form. It is more reasonable to suppose that he had some purpose in view. Circe obviously stands for an influence of a very sinister kind, and, if the line of interpretation already suggested is the true one, it follows that he must represent, in some way, the activities of the pseudo-classical school, and a detailed examination of the passage will show that it bears distinct marks of having been developed, with very little help from Ovid or Homer, so as to present a portrait, or a caricature, not so much of the classical school in general, as of its chief representative, Alexander Pope, in particular. We have the central and commanding position that Pope occupied among the swarm of petty scribblers and satirists of his day, and all around her shapes, wizard and brute, laughing and wailing, grovelling, serpentining, showing tooth, tusk and venom bag, and sting. Oh, such deformities! Endymion, Book 3, Line 500 His overbearing attitude towards these minor poets. Fierce, wan, and tyrannising was the lady's look. Line 506 The contemptuous way in which he flung his poems to the admirers and flatterers by whom he was surrounded, and the eagerness with which they received them. Oft times upon the sudden she laughed out, and from a basket emptied to the rout clusters of grapes, the which they ravened quick and roared for more. Line 509 Then follows a lively sketch of the way in which Pope turned upon these versifiers and spattered them with the acid of his satire. Avenging, slow, anon she took a branch of mistletoe, and emptied on a black, dull-gurgling file, groaned one and all, as if some piercing trial was sharpening for their pitiable bones. She lifted up the charm, appealing groans from their poor breasts when suing to her ear in vain. Remorseless as an infant's beer, she whisked against their eyes the sooty oil, whereat was heard a noise of painful toil, increasing gradual to a tempest rage, shrieks, yells, and groans of torture pilgrimage. The details have been selected so as to correspond with remarkable exactness to the facts. The first two words, avenging, slow, one of which, at least, is not particularly appropriate for Circe, for she had nothing to avenge, her anger had not yet been roused against Glaucus, can be used with exactness of the Dunciad, which has been described as a plan of vengeance, long meditated, carefully matured, and skilfully executed by the poet. The character of the contents, the anger and consternation that followed its appearance, the attitude of the author, are all depicted with an incisive humour, which is the sign of Keats' growing mastery over his work. The close adherence to the facts of the case is further marked by the division of the torment into two stages, of which the first is more of the nature of a threat, 
while the second is an open attack. This is exactly what had happened, for in March, 1727 to 1728, there had appeared a volume of miscellanies by Swift and Pope, in which was included a treatise in prose on bathos, or the art of sinking in poetry. In this, Pope satirizes various classes of writers of his time, but the attack is not often personal, and individual writers are indicated only by initials, which Pope declared to have chosen at random. It caused no small outcry, groaned one and all as if some piercing trial was sharpening for their pitiable bones. And this proved to be the case, for a few months later the Dunciad was published, and in this the numerous writers who fell under the poet's lash found themselves attacked by name, and the satire was more personal and more biting. The lines in which the outcome of the whole affair is described form a startling climax. Then a sight, more wildering than all that horse affright, for the whole herd, as by a whirlwind writhen, went through the dismal air like one huge python antagonizing Boreas, and so vanished. Yet there was not a breath of wind. She banished these phantoms with a nod. As an incident in the story, it is grotesque in the extreme. As an account of Circe's magic, it is quite unauthorized by any of the classical sources upon which Keats was supposed to be drawing, but as a description of the effect of the Dunciad upon the minor poets of Pope's time, it is the simple truth. They have all vanished from the realms of literature, and today only those who have made a special study of the period could tell even their names. If further evidence is needed to show that Circe is intended to represent Pope in this passage, it will be found in the pages of the Bathos, to which reference has already been made. From that work, it may be seen that the identification did not originate with Keats, but with no less an authority than Pope himself. In the sixth chapter, he says, I shall range these confined and less copious geniuses under proper classes, and, the better to give their pictures to the reader, under the names of animals of some sort or other. 1. The Flying Fishes These are writers who now and then rise upon their fins and fly out of the profound, but their wings are soon dry and they drop down to the bottom. G.S.A.H.C.G. Meaning George Stepney, Aaron Hill and Charles Gildon. 2. The swallows are authors that are eternally skimming and fluttering up and down, but all their agility is employed to catch flies. L.T. W.P. Lord H. Lewis Theobald. William Pulteney. Lord Hervey. And in the following paragraphs, he represents other writers as ostriches, parrots, they that repeat another's words in such a hoarse, odd voice as makes them seem their own. Didappers, porpoises, frogs, eels, and tortoises. And having thus transformed his victims, after the manner of Circe, he proceeds, in the following chapter, with cynical impertinence, to save his former friend Broom. The author's pencil, like the wand of Circe, turns all into monsters at a stroke. Wharton, in his edition of Pope, published about twenty years before Endymion was written, 
says of chapter six this was the chapter that gave so much offence and excited such loud clamours against our author by his introduction of these initial letters which he in vain asserted were placed at random and meant no particular writers which was not believed it seems sufficiently evident that we have here the origin of the Circe episode in Endymion. 4. In the culmination of the story, we find Keats departing altogether from the authority to which he has hitherto paid some degree of attention, and striking out a line of his own. In the Metamorphoses, Scylla is changed into a rock, and becomes a menace to those who sail between Sicily and Italy. But in Endymion, she is restored to active life and to her former beauty, and her union with Glaucus is crowned with the blessing of Neptune. It is a startling change, and no less so is the account of the means by which the restoration was brought about. It appears to be a pure invention on the part of Keats, and is either a wanton piece of triviality, without sense or meaning, as we are sometimes invited to believe, or it is a pictorial representation of one of the great events in the history of English literature. If the interpretation that has been outlined above represents at all accurately what Keats meant by the story of Glaucus, as he had found it in Ovid, and modified it to suit his own purpose, it is evident that he would, at this point, be faced by the necessity of devising some method of representing the sequel. He had shown us how English poetry, falling under the baleful influence of the classical school, had become ineffective and impotent. But he could not leave it there. He was conscious that a new life had been breathed into poetry since the time of Pope, and was even then pulsing through its veins. And so he invents the account of the way in which Glaucus was restored to youth and vigour. The passage is too long to quote. Endymion, Book 3, lines 645 and following but the essence of it is that Glaucus, sitting one day on a rock, saw a gallant vessel approaching. As she came nearer, a tempest arose. She was wrecked, and the feebleness which the curse of Circe had brought upon him prevented Glaucus from saving any of those who cried for help. As he was lamenting his inability to rescue them, there emerged from the waters at his feet an old man's hand, grasping a scroll and a wand. He laid hold of these, and even caught the old man's finger, but it slipped through his enfeebled grasp, and the last survivor of the wreck perished. The scroll, however, was saved. Glaucus read it with rapt attention, and found in it a promise of redemption. When Endymion came to him, the magic power of the scroll was made evident. Torn into pieces and scattered by the hand of Endymion in the face of Glaucus, it restored him to youthful vigour, while Scylla and all those whose bodies had been tended by Glaucus during the time of his decrepitude were brought back to life by the same means. The story is fantastic enough, but when the details are examined, it will be found that they show, in picturesque form, how the revival of poetry was brought about in the latter part of the 18th century. It has long been recognised that in Percy's relics of ancient English poetry we have the most complete embodiment of the forces that were at work to produce this result. Wordsworth bears emphatic testimony to this effect. For our own country, he says, its poetry has been absolutely redeemed by it. Footnote. 
Essay supplementary to the preface to the 1815 edition of Wordsworth's Poems. There appears to be something more than an accidental connection between this essay and the part of Endymion under consideration. In an earlier passage, Wordsworth speaks of the arts by which Pope contrived to procure to himself a more general and a higher reputation than perhaps any English poet ever attained during his lifetime. He refers to the undue exertion of these arts and speaks of Pope as having bewitched the nation by his melody. We learn from Keats' letters that he was staying at Oxford with his friend Bailey at the time when he was writing the story of Glaucus and that they had been reading Wordsworth together. Letter to Reynolds, 21st of September, 1817. End footnote. And later criticism has confirmed this point of view. Sir Richard Garnett, for example, says that it made an era not only in English but in European literature, affording the date from which, upon the whole, the commencement of the Romantic school may most fitly be reckoned. And Keats sketches in the story of it with vivid strokes. The vessel that comes from the horizon's brink stands for the ballad literature that had come down from the earlier centuries and in which men were beginning to take a new interest. The wrecking of the ship and the gulfing of all on board represent the disappearance of the great mass of the ballads and the complete oblivion that has overtaken their authors. The crew had gone by one and one to pale oblivion. Much more might have been rescued from the remains of this part of our literature, Keats tells us, but for the paralysing influence of the pseudo-classical school. Oh, they had all been saved, but crazed eld, annulled my vigorous cravings, and thus quelled and curbed. Think on't, O Latmian, did I sit writhing with pity, and a cursing fit against that hell-born Circe. Endymion, Book 3, line 661. But a scroll was saved from the wreck, and here, with a broadly realistic touch, is represented the famous manuscript out of which the relics grew. Just as Percy was barely in time to save it from destruction, so the scroll was, with difficulty, and only at the last moment, rescued from the waves, and as the unknown transcriber of the manuscript sank into oblivion, Though his work was preserved, so the hand that held out the scroll to Glaucus slipped through his grasp, and the unknown benefactor sank out of sight. As a story of a wreck, there is little point or meaning about it, but it gains in both if it is intended to represent the central incident in the revival of poetry. The scroll saved by Glaucus contained the promise of deliverance from his miserable state, but attached to the promise were two conditions. Endymion, Book 3, lines 696 and following. The first of these is stated simply and directly. He must study nature with sincere and earnest purpose to understand her meaning. The second is given in a more symbolical manner. All lovers, tempest-tossed, and in the savage overwhelming lost, he shall deposit side by side until time's creeping shall the dreary space fulfil, by which is meant that the reverent regard paid to the older poets during the age of Pope was one of the conditions that helped to make the later revival possible. Pope himself had a great reverence for Spencer, but it would be difficult to trace any effective influence 
that Spencer exerted upon him. So we are told that these bodies lay to all appearance dead, deposited side by side, on the shelves of those who could draw no living inspiration from them. But their beauty remained unspoiled. Endymion found their patient lips all ruddy, for here death no blossom nips. Line 739. It was from these two sources that the new romantic movement drew much of its inspiration, a sympathetic study of nature and a reverent regard for the great poets of earlier times. Neither the relics, however, nor the fulfilment of these conditions could, of themselves, effect the deliverance of poetry. They could do no more than quell one half of the witch. Line 644. A living force was needed, and so it was not until Endymion, representing the spirit of the new poetry, came upon the scene that any change could be brought about. He it was who, scattering in the face of Glaucus some pieces of the scroll, restored him to youthful vigour, and then, showering these powerful fragments on Scylla and on the files of seemingly dead bodies, brought them back to life. Thus was accomplished the revival of poetry, which meant so much to those who shared in it that they wandered to and fro, distracted with the richest overflow of joy that ever poured from heaven. Lines 804 and following. When this interpretation of Keats' rendering of the story of Glaucus was first put forward, with less evidence in support of it than has now been adduced, some critics accepted it, but others, whose opinion one cannot but respect, pronounced a verdict of not proven. This fresh presentation of the argument may perhaps justify a reconsideration of the verdict, but, in any case, it is worthwhile to consider very briefly the alternatives that are open if this interpretation be not accepted. It is clear that Keats either meant what has here been suggested, or he had some other meaning in mind, or he meant nothing in particular, and was merely allowing his imagination to wander at random. No other meaning, however, appears to have been proposed for this part of the story, so that this alternative does not call for discussion. The view that is taken, so far as one can gather, by those who have hitherto felt unable to accept the present interpretation, is that Keats had no definite meaning in mind in writing this story, which amounts to saying that Keats, in the middle of what he was trying to make a great poem, allowed himself to wander from the point and to indulge for pages at a time in writing irrelevant nonsense that had no bearing upon anything in particular. Now, there is an inherent improbability about this position, greater than appears to be realised by those who have assumed it, that the poem, as a whole, has a meaning and a purpose, is common ground. Sir Sidney Colvin, who cannot be claimed as a supporter of the interpretation here put forward, states it thus. The tale of the loves of the Greek shepherd prince and the moon goddess turns under his hand into a parable of the adventures of the poetic soul striving after full communion with the spirit of essential beauty. Professor Oliver Elton puts it in a similar way. The pains and pleasures that come to the poetic soul in its search for ideal beauty are figured under Endymion's adventures, and the moon herself is the image of such beauty. But if a real significance underlies the figure of Endymion, 
and the story of his adventures, it is surely unlikely that the figure of Glaucus and the story of his adventures, which fill nearly the whole of the third book of the poem, have no significance, but are mere meaningless fancies, especially in view of the fact that Endymion himself is closely linked up with them. Moreover, the subject with which Keats was dealing was the one on which, of all possible subjects, he was least likely to write irrelevant nonsense. Poetry was, to his mind, says one of his fellow students in the medical school, the zenith of all his aspirations, the only thing worthy the attention of superior minds, so he thought. All other pursuits were mean and tame. He had no idea of fame or greatness, but as it was connected with the pursuits of poetry, or the attainment of poetical excellence. The greatest men in the world were the poets, and to rank among them was the chief object of his ambition. And, bearing this in mind, one is compelled to feel that the improbability of his representing in picturesque form his ideas about an important, though to him an objectionable, phase of English poetry, in the course of a poem which admittedly deals with some aspects of that subject, is less than the improbability of his scribbling grotesque and meaningless pictures across the pages of such a poem. Keats was a thinker as well as a singer, and to suppose that he would have allowed himself to fill up a poem of this kind with mere idle dreaming, having no point or sense, seems neither fair to the poet nor critically sound. It has been shown that the variations on the original story, which are due to the invention of Keats, fit with peculiar exactness into the interpretation that has been outlined above. This interpretation corresponds with the views which Keats is known to have held on the classical school of poetry, and the most natural inference would appear to be that this is the meaning which he intended to convey, that he has not succeeded in conveying it to the majority of those who have read the poem, probably not a very large number, must be admitted. He was, as we know from his letters, tired of the poem before he had done with it, and was, no doubt, disappointed, as the artist usually is, at the difference between his original conception and the form into which he had shaped it. The ridicule which was poured upon it by a few, and the indifference of the world at large, added to his own feeling about the poem, would leave him with little inclination to explain what he meant by it. And so, in those of his letters which have come down to us, though he must have written many others, there is little or nothing to help us in tracing out its intention. But the verdict of Keats' contemporaries has long been set aside. Together with many weaknesses and imperfections, it is now agreed that Endymion contains much that is beautiful and effective, and, if we recognise in it a richer meaning and a more definite purpose than has hitherto been suspected, we lose nothing of our delight in its poetic beauty, but gain a sense of reality and significance that can only add to its value. Stellenbosch, South Africa, 23rd of February, 1921 End of section. End of An Interpretation of Keats' Endymion by Henry Clement Notcutt. Read by Algie Pug.